0: Well, this is a unique time of year. I mean, it's the only time of year we do this kind of stuff and dress up the, the, the sanctuary. It's, it's a time of year in which people get very sentimental. Uh, my dad grew up uh, very poor uh, in, in southeastern Kentucky, Uh, I think he told me for Christmas if he got a piece of juicy fruit gum, he thought it was a good Christmas. And uh, so I I used, I'll confess, I kind of used to make fun of my dad when he would sit at our Christmas tree and just stare at it. And now that I'm older, I realize he was just reflecting on where he was and where he had come from. And he was deeply sentimental. Uh, this is a day in which we bring this is a time special decorations maybe you have that one decoration that was like your grandmother's and your mother's and now it's yours or that one that's been passed down we bring those out those special decorations it's a it's a time of year in which parties are planned people are already talking about maybe the office Christmas party or having some people over Uh, family gatherings are put together. Where are we meeting this year for Christmas? We talked yesterday with our daughter and son-in-law about what I'm bringing up for, you know, what what are we bringing for Christmas dinner? Of course, the two oldest grandkids said, smoke mac and cheese. If you don't bring it, don't come. You know, so I've got my marching orders. We've got that. And sometimes it's a time where we think back and remember how it used to be, how it was back in the day. For some people, this is the most wonderful time of the year. For others, this is, if not the most difficult time of the year, it's one of them. For some, it's a struggle. Several years ago, we did a little seminar here um, together. Myself and another and a uh, counselor in the area put together a seminar on holiday blues. For some people, the holidays bring about that, that sadness, those blues. It's difficult. It may be this is a time of year that brings about some painful memories. It may be that this is a time of year that kind of highlights somebody's isolation or loneliness. There are others this time of year is just kind of like, let me just get through it. And the parties are okay, and the gatherings are so-so, and the traditions are okay, but for the most part, they're apathetic toward the whole Christmas thing. Just give me the paid holiday, and I'll be fine. It's a difficult time of year. It's a great time of year. It's a little bit of both. In my estimation, no matter what your response to the Christmas season is, there's an underlying reality in every one of us. It's a sense of longing. We all have a sense of longing. Some of us have a sense of longing for Christmas to be just the way it was and just the way I remember it as a kid. For others... We long for someone or something just to make the pain or just to make the loneliness go away. And for others of us, we long, just can I get through it with minimal interruption to my life? But we all have a a longing. We long for something. A few years ago, the Coca-Cola company rolled out a unique can for their Diet Coke for Christmas. It was a silver can. And along the rim, it said, give, live, love. I actually used those words and actually had a picture of the can of Coca-Cola, diet Coca-Cola, on the screen. And that was the outline for my Christmas Eve sermon that year. So as I was reflecting on it, I thought, I wonder what they're, you know, I, I don't see a lot of Coke commercials. It's great when you record things and you can just fast forward to those commercials. But I watch a little bit of football, a lot of football, and uh, I haven't seen their commercials yet. But I, so I went and I Googled it and I said, what, what is Coca-Cola's theme for 2023? And the theme for Coca-Cola for 2023 is the world needs more Santas. The world needs more Santas. Now if you go, I'm not going to play it, it's too long, but if you go type that in and go to the YouTube video, you would find this really nice song, and there's all of these Santas. Thank you, AI. There's, they all look the same, and they're rushing around. They they go to the gym, and there's a, a Santa who's doing bench presses, and that last one, he can't get up, and another Santa runs over and helps him up, and, and different Santas helping everybody. The last scene, and, and in the background, there's the British artist Celeste is singing this song, and in the last scene, there's a Santa at the vending machine the coca-cola vending machine and a nice bottle of coke comes out and it shows that that's the last one and here comes another santa just full of presents walking down the street seeming exhausted and the santa with the coke turns and hands it to the other santa and then the scene shifts and it's just one person handing another person a bottle of coke because they look exhausted from a day of shopping the chorus repeatedly reminds us anyone can be Santa. I smiled as I watched that. I was impressed by the creativity and the sentiment. Our world is in desperate need of people looking out for one another, looking to help one another. But why do we limit those sentiments to Christmas? Have you ever noticed that? It seems like uh, even back in the day when certain members of my family watched soap operas, there was peace through the Christmas season, but then, boy, the day after, they're right back at whatever the controversy is. We've heard stories. There's actually been a movie made, enemy combatants laying down their weapons and singing Christmas carols to one another, and exchanging gifts, and playing soccer together on Christmas Day, only to take up weapons again on December 26th. What happened to the peace? This year, we're going to do a different thing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time this year talking about the wise men or the shepherds or Mary and Joseph or the baby in a manger. Uh, This year, we're going to look at living life after the manger. Here's what I mean by that. All too often, we and and there's nothing wrong with focusing on the birth of Jesus, and, and any of my colleagues out there who are doing that, praise God for them, but sometimes I'm afraid that we miss the rest of the story. You see, it's important sometimes to remember this baby born in a common room uh, in somebody's house, wrapped in rags, they called them swaddling clothes, laid in a feeding trough, uh, born to a probably 14-year-old teenage mom, some of us cringe, when we hear it said that way. We want the stable, we want the sheep, we want the cattle. It probably wasn't the way that we wanted. We want to romanticize Jesus' birth, don't we? we? Want the halo over the head. We we want to imagine the little drummer drummer boy, parumpa pum pum, which, you know, when we had babies, my wife would have run out somebody that wanted to play the drums (laughs) but anyway we want the drummer boy we want that perfect child don't we we want that baby that didn't need a diaper change and when he wakes no crying he makes the temptation is to leave jesus in the manger in a way that gives us this warm and fuzzy feeling so that we can just go on with our lives the way we choose to live them and he doesn't really make a difference but i feel good at christmas We want everyone to say Jesus is the reason for the season. We want everybody to celebrate Christmas just like we do. But what about six months from now? How does the reality of Jesus in the manger make a difference then? So we're not going to focus on the baby, the shepherds, the wise men. We're going to look beyond the manger. We're going to be looking for principles of living after the presents have been opened After you've returned the things that you don't want, after the decorations have been put away, after we've left grandma's house and returned to the routine of life, you can't get much further away from the manger than 1 John. I would invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 John. And yet, I think the theme throughout all of this little book, 1 John, is is really tied into the reason Jesus came. In a moment, I'm going to give you a brief overview of all of 1 John. And as I give that overview, I want you to carefully think about, and you may even want to write down, I want you to respond to this statement in your mind or on your bulletin. I feel most loved when... dot, dot. I feel most loved when think about that first john was probably written about 60 years after jesus ascended to heaven and john reminds us throughout the book that those of us especially who follow jesus we need each other in, in chapter 1, John tells us that we need each other and that we're bound together. We have, he uses the word fellowship, which is a Greek word, koinonia, which means to have something in common. And even with all of our various experiences in life, what we have in common is Jesus Christ. And so we we, we have that in common. And as a result, because we have Jesus in common, we keep short accounts. We keep short accounts with God. It's in 1 John, we're told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we need that relationship. We don't want to have something get in the way of that relationship with our our Lord and Savior. And and, and then in chapter 2, he reminds us that we can't play games with God. in, In a sense... One of the lines that comes to my mind that's not part of John, it's my interpretation, is talk is cheap. So if you say you love Jesus, but you don't love others who say they love Jesus, then you can't love Jesus. Talk is cheap. If you say you love Jesus, you're going to love others who do love Jesus. And and, and we get kind of, we'll get to that in a minute, because I think sometimes we misdefine what it looks like to love. In chapter 3 we're reminded again, talk is cheap because love extends beyond what we say to what we do. Jesus didn't just say he loves us, he showed it in action. So when we say somebody, we need to be willing to do what we can do to help them when they're in need. In chapter 4 that we're going to camp on here in a little bit, we're reminded that anyone who denies Jesus isn't part of the family of God. And quickly we're reminded that we love each other because love is from God. We're told, and we'll see it here in a few minutes, God is love. And even when people can't see God, they can see him in the way that we who say we follow him love one another and love others. Chapter 5 is a call to keep loving one another and, and, and confessing our sins and being restored by forgiveness and having a confidence that as we live in God's love we have all that God wants us to have but you not be thinking about all that you've been thinking about i feel most loved when if you've been thinking about that statement my guess is maybe you've completed that sentence with maybe a word like i feel most loved when i am valued I feel most love when I'm listened to. I feel most love when I'm seen. Maybe it was I feel most love when I'm understood. I feel most love when someone did and you may have, somebody may have sacrificed for you and you felt very loved. Maybe someone walked with you, just came alongside, and and, and maybe in a physical way but also in a metaphorical way put their arm around you and said, come on, I'm going to walk with you through this trial, and I am not going to leave your side till you get on the other side of it. And maybe you feel most love when someone walked with you through a difficult time. Maybe you felt most love when someone stepped up and helped you before you even asked for help. I would submit to you, I want to do that with that in your mind. Let me read 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to read all the way through till the end of the chapter, but then we're going to focus on verses 7 through 12. Listen to 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. 1 John 4, 7 says we love one another because love comes from God. And I would put it this way. When you and I feel most love, someone has initiated the action. When you and I feel most loved, someone else has initiated the action. When I have to beg someone to do something and beg someone to help me, beg someone to come alongside, then that's not when you feel loved. But when someone else says, here, let me help. Here, let me change your tire. Here, let me carry that bag for you. They've initiated. We feel loved. And all the way down that I read in verse 19, one of my favorite verses because when I went to my granny's church, we always had to quote a verse after Sunday school, and we you tried to get first because you, if you didn't get John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept, then you could get 1 John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us. Boom. You could sit down, you're done. Then otherwise it got really hard. What a great truth. We love because he first loved us. He's the initiator. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God is the initiator. In your story that you're thinking about right now, you felt love because somebody didn't wait for you to ask for help. They said, what can I do? And maybe they specified. Because sometimes it's the, well, if you need anything, let me know. But other times it's, I'd like to bring a meal. Can I bring a meal? Uh, Do you need a ride to the doctor? Let me take you. Do you need someone to go in with you and kind of be another pair of ears and eyes and take notes? Uh, If you would give me permission, I would do that. How do you help? Somebody didn't wait. They stepped in. They initiated. They met you in your moment of need. And they did it in a way that didn't overwhelm you. And they did it in a way that didn't make you feel obligated to do something for them. God is not just the initiator of love. God is the source of love. Twice in this passage we read, God is love. It's his character. It's who he is. And I realize, well, God is holy. God is just. All of that. It's all true. But John says God is love. He is the embodiment of love. He is the definition of love. God is love. And John says, when we love, when we initiate, it shows that we're from God. Here's here's an interesting point. Even the person who is the furthest away from anything that would remotely represent a Christ follower still has feelings and shows expressions of love. Many years ago, I worked on an asphalt construction crew. Those guys were rough and tumble. But you know what? The 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 most the vilest foul mouthed one of them, if I asked him something about his kids, there was a change. He would talk about you know, and, and there was just that that something came up from deep inside. He loved his kids. I once asked an individual who had been a, a bouncer in a bar his forearms were as thick as my thighs and i asked him i said if i had known you for 10 years what would i know about you and he leaned over and i thought and there were tattoo sleeves all the way down i thought oh man and he looked at me and he got real quiet and he said you would know i love my kids you know, it's just something, there's something in all of us that knows what real love is. Why? Because as human beings, we were created in the image of God, and being created in the image of God, every human being is imbued with love from God, and even if they haven't learned how to express it, they know what it is, and they know what it is to be loved. When another person initiates action of love and care for us, we feel noticed, we feel valued, we feel seen. The first one to initiate an act of love was God himself because God is the source of love because God is love and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And how much did he love us? He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Someone has aptly described the depth of God's love for us in this statement I have given God a million reasons not to love me. None of them changed his mind. When you and I feel most loved, someone else has initiated the action. John says, this is love. This is how God showed his love among us. Verse 9 of chapter 4, He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. When you and I feel most love, someone else has initiated the action. But a second reality is there. Love always costs the one who initiates. Love always costs the one who initiated. We're celebrating the first part of God's love this season, his sending of his son. God sent his son. Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of, of his glory. He, he put on hold some of his attributes. He became nothing for us. He set that aside. He Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the active voice of creation. And, and, and yet the active voice of creation became a creature. You know, you don't let it escape you, God the eternal son limited himself and entered the womb he entered the earth through the birth canal he was dependent on his creation he was dependent on his creation to feed him and burp him and change him and protect him, and to teach him to walk, and to teach him a career, and to love him, and to model and teach him how to love others. Luke chapter 2, the very end, verse 52, says, And Jesus increased in wisdom. He grew intellectually. And in stature, he grew physically. And in favor with God, he grew spiritually spiritually. And in favor with man, he grew socially. All kinds of books have been written. What happens between the time Jesus is 12 to the time he's 30? Those 18 years of silence, he lived. He lived with his brothers and his sisters. Tradition says that at some point during that time, Joseph probably died. So he grieved. He grieved the loss of his dad. He went to the synagogue. He memorized verses. He ate Mary's food. He worked, uh, the the, the word that's translated carpenter probably means more like a stonemason. So there were days that he was putting one brick on the other. Maybe some days he smashed his finger. He lived. The king of glory, the eternal son, the active voice in creation, set it all aside because love comes at a cost. When that person showed you love, or when you have shown somebody else love, there's a cost. There's always a cost. It might be a cost of time. It might be that you gave up some time that you wanted to do something else because somebody needed you. They needed you here. They needed you there. They needed you at the hospital. They needed you at their house. They needed you. You gave up time. Sometimes it'll cost money. It will. I mean, if nothing else, gas money. Sometimes it'll cost you just energy, effort because you're giving of yourself. Sometimes it'll cost you heartache as you grieve with someone else. But if it is truly a gift of love, whether you're giving it to someone else or someone is giving it to you, if it's truly a gift of love, there's never a reminder of what the cost was and never an expectation of repayment. If someone reminds you of how they've sacrificed for you, then they didn't do it out of love. Never forget that what we stress is often the fact that God's love for us cost him It cost his son everything. Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He took on the sin of the world. That cry that comes out of Psalm 22, as Jesus is there, as it's turning dark, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sense of aloneness, that sense of having nothing left but himself, that sense of My mentor used to say, Jesus died alone so that we would never have to be alone. But he was totally alone. 1 John 3.16 tells us Jesus laid down his life for us. I don't know how many of us, maybe very few of us, have ever had another human being lay down their lives for us. But if it's happened, you don't forget it. Some of you have heard me tell this before. I was privileged when I started out as a youth pastor. I, I, I now know how privileged I was. There were days I didn't think I was privileged. I'm like a 20, I think I was 26. And both of my superiors, my senior pastor, associate, they were literally both old enough to eat to be of my dad. They became my mentors. One of my mentors, Lowell, well, both of them were World War II vets. My senior pastor had been in the Pacific Theater Theater Lowell was in Europe. In fact, he was in the Battle of the Bulge in the Ardennes Forest in the winter of December and January 1944-1945. His unit had taken out a machine gun nest. And as they got to the, where that nest was, there was a big 50 caliber machine gun sitting there, and there was a pillbox, a fortified pillbox. And it was my friend's turn to take a watch. And the sergeant came up to him and said, you know what, Landis, you look beat. You just go in here and rest. Come and relieve me for the next watch. He got into the pillbox with the rest of his platoon. They got all settled down, and they heard the whine of a shell coming down, and a shell hit and literally blew up that machine gun and that sergeant. Lowell told me, he said, for the first time in my life, I began to understand someone making a sacrifice for me. He was not a follower of Christ at that point, but he had left behind in Ohio, Naomi, a wonderful, lovely gal, and before he left, And shipped out. He had asked her to marry him. Now she is troubled because she knew Jesus and she knew he didn't. But she accepted. And so she's home praying every day and every night that he would not only come to know Jesus, but that he would also come home safely. The next day, they come out of the pillbox, they're supposed to take a hill, and literally, as he is pinned down by enemy fire in a foxhole, he cries out to God. And he says, I don't remember the exact prayer, but it was a prayer of, okay, God, get me through this. I'll serve you forever. It's one of those kind of prayers. But he came to know Jesus that day. And by the way, 50 years later, he went back. And I saw a picture of the hill that they were taking where he came to know Christ. And I saw a picture of the cross and the name of his sergeant on it. Love always costs. Every time we take communion, remember the cost for you and for me. Every time you just look at that cross up there, remember the cost of God's love for you. It cost him everything. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So what? Yeah, that's a question I ask myself at the end of preparing every sermon. So what? What do we do? How do we take all of this? How do we take this talk about love and and all? How do we take about it and live life after the manger? How do we live this on December 26th? How do we live it as we move into 2024? John has an answer for us. Dear friends, verse 11. Since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. When we unconditionally love one another, we put God's love on display. When we unconditionally love one another, we put God's love on display. John says nobody's ever seen God. So they get their image of God from the way those of us who claim to love God treat one another. And that begins right here. When we love one another, when we come alongside one another, when we practically provide assistance to one another, we are putting God's love on display. When we correct one another, and and you know what? Love isn't just you go do what you want. No, love corrects. When we correct one another and do that in a loving way, we put God's love on display. When we set relationship boundaries for the safety of ourselves and for the safety of someone else so that we have a healthy relationship and we have space to grow and space to improve, that's love. It's part of a healthy community. And by the way, don't hear me say that you have to like everybody. There are a lot of people that don't like me. I know you find that hard to believe, but it's true. There are people that I don't like, that I don't enjoy being around. But like is different than love. Love says, I may not, you and I may get along like oil and water, so there's going to be some space between us for the sake of both of us. But if there's a need and I can meet that need, I'll be there. If there's a need and you can meet that need, you ought to be there. You see, when we have this loving relationship that we correct, we come along, we build community. And I'm going to tell you, everybody needs community. We were created as social beings. We need each other. And when we, we actively look for community... You see, if somebody doesn't find a loving community here in the family of God, here at Pleasant Hill Community Church or whatever local church you want to say, if they don't find a community there, our culture has many avenues of community. I drive by two of them a couple times every day. There is community at Wheaton Sports Center. There are people that go there and they exercise and they find, and there's nothing wrong with that. And just down the street on the left, if you're going south, there is community at Rosie's. You see it. You see the parking lot packed on a regular basis. When the summertime is out, people are out. There's community there. There's community down the road at the VFW. There's community at wherever people volunteer. There's community at DuPage Animal Shelter. There's community there. There's people gather. And because we long for community, we long for commonality. When Charlene and I were band parents, there was community within the band parents. There was a, we still are on some kind of an email chain with a bunch of the band parents that we hear from every now and then. We're Facebook friends with some of them. There was community that was built. All of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus ought to set the tone for community. We need each other. And when we love each other and when we care for one another and we care for those around us, we put God's love on display. John says, it's the way other people will see God. Now, it's easy to hear this and have some unhealthy responses. This is not a sermon to make anybody feel guilty because you didn't maybe contribute to a fundraiser at work. Or maybe you got upset with a neighbor last week or a coworker. That, that, that's not the point. Everybody has those moments. Loving others, I believe, is the simple act of being aware, stepping in to help in simple ways when you have the opportunity. I don't want us to complicate it. I'm going to give you one example. A personal example, I asked my wife permission to, to share this. And I asked her if, it, if she saw it as an act of love. I have a routine every single morning unless I am sick in bed. At night, before we go, or just before we go to bed, we, we run the dishwasher. And then we try to run it in the timing so that when it's done, we can open it and let, it, let all the dishes air dry. And every morning after I've gotten up and, you know, done my wordle and then gotten my shower and in that order because I need to wake my brain up first, I go and empty the dishwasher, put all the dishes away, clean the kitchen. I make sure everything is clean. Charlene did this thing years ago, Fly Lady, she still does it, and they talk about a shiny sink. So I make sure that sink, I I do that. My coffee's brewing as I'm doing that. Now, Charlene doesn't come out in the morning and gush and go, oh, honey, you're so great. I mean, she could, but she doesn't. But I know her love language, acts of service. My doing that, and, 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 and I said, she goes, yeah. She goes, in fact, sometimes I'll clean up something after I'm done cooking or something because I don't want you to feel like you have to do it in the next morning. It's just a simple thing. It's no biggie. It's such a routine now, I don't even think about it. But it's love in action. It's what it's about. You know, if I walked out, if Charlene walked out some morning and there was a dozen red roses on the table, just beautiful, purchased at Jewel by my personal florist put together, and the sink was full of dishes, and the dishwasher wasn't emptied, she wouldn't feel as loved. Make it simple. Don't complicate this. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. How do we show God's love? It's displayed through us. Living life after the manger means being people of love. Love that initiates, love that sacrifices, love that corrects, love that heals, love that protects, love that expects nothing in return, just a simple day-in-and-day-to-day life love. In my mind, what makes the marketing campaign, The World Needs More Santas, resonate with people, or at least with the team who dreamed it up, is simply this, we were created by God to love. And even when we don't have a good picture in our mind of who God is, we know what kindness is and we know that it's the right thing. So we come up with ways to express that kindness. And Coca-Cola has come up with a way to express kindness in a way that's acceptable and user-friendly and culturally sensitive. But I would submit to you this morning, before, during, and after our Christmas celebrations, the world needs to see more Jesus. God has tasked you and me who claim to be followers of Jesus to paint a picture of his love in the way we live our lives. May the people you interact with in your normal daily routines in some way see Jesus even if they can't fully articulate what they've seen. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this reminder from from John as far as love and being people of love. And I ask, Lord, that this morning, as we leave this place, as we will go about our routines, as we will go about our week, as we will go about our plans, that we will look for ways To be aware of ways where we can just say that word of kindness, give that little bit of help, walk alongside someone in need, and be a living word picture of the love of God that was freely given to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.